0: Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Hold on a minute. Wait a minute. Calm down and listen to me. Nobody's saying you can't own a gun. Nobody's even saying you can't carry a gun. All we're saying is you can't carry a gun in town. And here we are, D. At a gun show, huh? Lowest common denominator. Is that a bazooka? Insanely dangerous this place is. It's crazy. Oh, look at this guy right here. He'll probably sell us a gun. Excuse me, sir. Um, I would like to buy a gun from you. Something that is unnecessarily powerful. Something you would never need in Philadelphia. Yeah, ooh, ooh. But you know what you shouldn't do, though, is look into our very sketchy pasts. No. <laughs> That's not a problem. We all got a sketchy past. Ty Webb. Heavy Longmire Gustav Matteblanc Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then Plato, enlighten me. Hi friends, it's your old pal Gustav, and as you can probably tell by today's title, it's just me. It is Can You Hear Me, the podcast. Normally, three guys talking about stuff, but for today, it's just going to be me. You know, with the recent attack on Parkland High School, there's been a lot of rhetoric and a lot of debate going on concerning gun control. And over the past few months, it's been mentioned off-air between me and Ty and Heavy, we possibly might do a gun control episode. Now, that may happen once we have the full crew together. But in the meantime, I started to get some questions from friends and listeners. And I'd like to use this episode to answer those questions and provide some historical background about everything. Now, when we get the team together, we can have an actual debate and dig into a proper discussion. We probably won't get anywhere, but you know how that goes. I'll try to keep things as middle of the road as possible, but I can't make any promises. And also, I need to state that I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a law enforcement officer, just a person that's been dealing with guns all my life. I guess the first thing we need to do is discuss what brought about the Second Amendment. You know, it actually goes back to English common law, which a lot of our early laws are built upon, although English common law had up to that point been questionable concerning actual liberty. But... In English common law, it was established that the citizens should be armed, even though that didn't always help them out. But it was came about with the Protestants and the Catholics making sure one side didn't have the upper hand on the other after their revolution. And it stuck around, but obviously King George and his redcoats had something else to say about that during the revolution. But after the revolution, the Founding Fathers debated on how to enumerate our liberties. You know, the original Constitution doesn't have our Bill of Rights in it. That was added on. And while we were going through the Articles of Confederation and trying to find our way to a federal constitution that we would eventually have, the early states were adopting their own constitutions. And some of them began to deal with the right to bear arms during that time period. The Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 explicitly enumerated the right to bear arms saying the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. Vermont's constitution had two iterations, the first in 1776 and the second in 1786, and they both proclaimed that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. Massachusetts's 1780 constitution asserts the people have a right to keep and bear arms for the common defense. Now, North Carolina And their Constitution of 1776 guarantees the people's right to bear arms for the defense of the state. So you get the point. They're already laying this out as a right that they need to call out and explicitly state that we need this moving forward. Because the people need to have the ability to protect themselves and the state. If you remember your early American history you'll remember that the federal constitution was no slam dunk. There was plenty of back and forth between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in public newspapers, often going under pseudonyms to protect their identity. Although I'm pretty sure most people knew who they were, I guess, but whatever. It's similar to being on Twitter these days, I guess. In Federalist Paper Number 46, James Madison made the case that the federal government's ability to be for tyranny would be checked by an armed populace and the ability of states to raise their own militias. Now, I'm going to read this text, and it's, you know, 18th century, so bear with me. The highest number to which, according to the best computation, a standing army can be carried in any country does not exceed one hundredth part of the whole number of souls, or one twenty-fifth part of the number able to bear arms. This proportion would not yield in the United States an army of more than 25 or 30,000 men. To these would be opposed a militia amounting to near a half a million citizens with arms in their hands, officered by men chosen from amongst themselves, fighting for their common liberties, and united and conducted by governments possessing their affections and confidence. It may well be doubted whether a militia thus circumstanced, could ever be conquered by such a proportion of regular troops. Those who are best acquainted with the last successful resistance of this country against the British arms will be most inclined to deny the possibility of it. Besides, the advantage of being armed, which the American possesses over the people of almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed, Forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition, more insurmountable than any which a single simple government of any form can admit of. Notwithstanding the military establishments in several kingdoms of Europe, which are carried as far as the public resources will bear, the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. And it is not certain that with this aid alone, local governments chosen by themselves, who could collect national will, and direct the national force, and of officers appointed out of the militia by these governments and attached both to them and to the militia, it may be affirmed with greatest assurance that the throne of every tyranny in Europe would be speedily overturned in spite of the legions which surround it, end quote. Not like you couldn't tell, right? So Madison had already put it out there that you know part of the goal of the Federalist Papers were to reassure the anti-Federalist sentiments that they weren't going to be under a new king or a new tyrannical government like they had with England that they were scared of a standing army and they wanted the power to be with the people and they saw it that the only way that a populace could push back was if they were armed and they saw this from first-hand experience. Now of course the Constitution was ratified, they did add the Bill of Rights, and once they did, we got this. The Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of the free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Of course, there's debate nowadays about these pesky commas. What exactly the militia is, and what well-regulated meant. And we can save that deep dive for our full debate episode if it ever happens. But it seems clear to me, from both Madison and Adams' writings of the time, that the private citizen was intended to have his right to bear arms protected. And as far as the phrase well-regulated goes, that seems to be a phrase of that era that meant operational and functional. Well-regulated was often used to mean properly functioning as well as properly trained. It's a semantic argument at best now that we'll save for later. So, the foundation of the country, we have no federal gun control. But in the early 19th century, we start to see the first examples of gun control laws. But this time at the state level. In 1837, the state of Georgia banned the sale and carrying of certain knives, such as Bowie knives, and handguns. Now, Hawkins Nunn was charged and convicted of carrying a pistol. I don't know a whole lot about Hawkins Nunn, except he's got a pretty cool name. He appealed his conviction, citing the Second Amendment, and eventually the Supreme Court heard the case. And in their ruling, they said that the Georgia law was not unconstitutional in prohibiting concealed carry, but it was unconstitutional to ban the public from owning the weapons. Now, an interesting side note is that around this time, we had the first technological jump from what? Weapons were available at the time of the Constitution was ratified to what was now available to the public. Again, if you think back to colonial days, firearms at the time of the Constitutional Convention were flintlocks, meaning that they had a piece of flint held in a metal clamp that not only did you have to load the powder and the shot or the ball down the barrel, But you also had to prime a small pan that sits aside the barrel for the flint to hit the frizzin, which is a metal bar, striking a spark that lands in the pan that flashes and goes through a flash hole to light the main charge. And that's pretty much how all firearms operated at the time the Constitution was ratified. But by the 1830s, things were changing. The percussion cap had been developed which now created a spark when the hammer hit the tiny metal cap containing mercury fulminate. It doesn't seem that much like to us. You know, we all had cap guns as kids. Pop, pop, pop. Same basic idea. But at the time, it was a huge technological jump. And while there had been multiple barreled weapons available at the time of the Constitution, the other big technological jump was the first commercially available revolver made by one Samuel Colt. With the availability of percussion caps for ignition Colt designed a five shot revolver thus creating the first rapid fire high capacity assault thingamajig the world had ever known in a world where everyone else was limited to one slow shot the ability to fire off five rounds in rapid succession was a game changer there's a couple of other instances where gun control comes up and is carried out but the next big issue in my opinion concerning gun control involved a sad time of our national history prior to and directly after the civil war a multitude of laws across both southern and northern states were passed that are often collectively lumped into the term black codes prior to the war they were aimed at keeping freemen from having the same freedom that whites had and after the war they were used to oppress the newly freed slaves. Sometimes even there were some during the war where Union Army used black codes to basically create a de facto slavery of newly freed slaves to help them with their labor needs during the war. The black code set up laws concerning vagrancy, which were then used to control the newly freed black population and create an additional de facto form of slavery As there was a labor shortage on all of these plantations in the South, and now that the former slaves had no obligation to be there, if you could charge someone with vagrancy because they either couldn't produce a job or a certificate showing that they had a job or pay a tax, then you could go ship them off to some work farm, and under the guise of the law, you still had free or incredibly low-cost labor. These codes also prevented interracial marriage, and in some states, outlawed former slaves from owning or possessing or carrying firearms. But due to the times, these laws were, as far as I know, never made it to the Supreme Court, due to the disenfranchisement of these newly freed people. We also had our next big technological jump after the Civil War. Brass cartridge firing weapons became commercially available for the first time, And unless you couldn't afford to make the switch, you no longer had to use percussion caps for firing weapons. The cartridge was now made of a brass case which contained the powder with a bullet seated above it. Instead of the old-style percussion cap on the outside of the gun, the primer cap was now seated in the base of the cartridge. Loading even a single-shot weapon was greatly sped up. And for the first time, large caliber rifles could have a magazine With multiple rounds. The repeating rifles made by companies like Henry, Winchester, Spencer, and Marlin offered up to 15 rounds of, for the time, what was powerful ammunition. A few years later, Marlin and Winchester would offer up even more powerful calibers in these repeating rifles, but with lower magazine capacities due to the overall length of the cartridge. And in the realm of the single shot rifles, Thanks to better engineering and improved metallurgy, makers like Remington, Sharps, and Winchester produced the Buffalo guns, which would fire cartridges which were more powerful than anything that could have been thought of with a standard muzzle loading rifle. Now, with this world of six shooters and repeating rifles and the wild, wild west that we all know from the movies, it's kind of surprising to think that local towns started to enact their own gun control laws in the last quarter of the 19th century it wasn't uncommon for laws to be passed that barred the open carrying of weapons on the streets now ownership was not prohibited but depending on the law concealed or even open carry would both be prohibited these were laws passed at the city level And I'm not aware of any, aware of any from the later 19th century that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. But, that doesn't mean they didn't. I just am not sure of them. Again, I'm not a Supreme Court scholar. But as we saw in the 1837 Nunn ruling, the court had ruled the laws regarding concealed carry were acceptable, as long as they didn't encroach on ownership. Many of these laws in the cattle and mining towns seemed to be aimed at the transient visitors to this town, instead of the actual established citizenry. It basically amounted to a coat check, but for guns, where you would either surrender your weapon at the hotel or the local lawman's office, and you'd receive a token, which you would then redeem when you were leaving town and get your guns back and head along your way. Again, this was at the local level, not state or even federal. And it was pretty much just aimed at keeping the town's peaceful and respectable and where business could happen because nobody wants to do business in a town that's getting all shot to hell. That still holds true in plenty of towns today, I guess. The Old West wasn't going to last forever, and things moved along into the 20th century. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit and talk about 1927, where a response to the violence that was brought on by prohibition, we see the first federal gun control legislation. Congress passed the Mailing Firearms Act, which prohibited the mailing of concealable firearms through the U.S. Postal Service. The law only prohibited delivery by the U.S. Postal Service, but not by private shippers. And along that same prohibition timeline, several states enacted their own laws banning fully automatic and, in some cases, semi-automatic weapons. Many of these semi-automatic weapon bans were based on arbitrary numbers of rounds, which were fireable from a magazine. These state legislature bans were in response to the high-profile violence of the Prohibition era, being carried out using elements of our third big technological jump. The end of the 19th century saw the rise of the semi-automatic and fully automatic weapon. Engineering geniuses like John Moses Browning ushered in a new era of firearm design, and the rise of modern factories brought about a new era in firearm technology. So let me take a moment and explain the difference between what was around before then and what this new era meant. In the last quarter of the 19th century, as we talked a little bit earlier, most of the rifles were either single shots, which were an entirely manual process of loading, or they had an integral magazine, which held multiple cartridges. Each round was either loaded by working the bolt action, or pumping a slide, or throwing a lever. It was a matter of firing a shot and then manipulating the action manually to reload and re the weapon. Most pistols of the time were revolvers. Some, like the Colt's single-action army, which you've all seen in all the old westerns, had to be manually cocked each time before firing, hence the name single-action. Smith and & Wesson, and as well as Colt later on, offered double-action revolvers, which were cocked and fired in the same squeeze of the trigger, or they could always be manually cocked as well. The end of the 19th century saw the decline of black powder and the rise of the smokeless powder. Now, not all gunpowder is created equal. Black powder is coarse and rough, it's inconsistent, and it's not as powerful. Smokeless powders, however, burn faster and cleaner, and they create more power, thus enabling modern cartridges to be more powerful and shoot further than ever before. A few detachable magazine-fed rifles began to appear. But they were generally bolt or lever action, and the handful of pistols which were magazine-fed were very expensive and European. And that's where John Browning came in, and changed modern handgunning forever. While he designed several pistols, the Colt 1911 was the first large-caliber semi-auto handgun to take America by storm. It held seven rounds of 45 ACP in the magazine, and one in the chamber if you were so inclined. The 1911 was more robust and mechanically easier to manufacture, which would be a hallmark of many of Browning's designs. The U.S. military adopted the 1911 as its sidearm, although there were still revolvers also issued over the years. And with World War I, a new generation of doughboys were introduced to the 1911 during the war. And during Prohibition and the Depression, the 1911 was also used by high-profile criminals... As the age of smokeless powder progressed, semi-automatic and fully automatic rifles were slower to develop. Fully automatic, of course, means you pull the trigger, and the gun keeps firing as long as you have the trigger engaged, or until you run out of ammunition. Semi-automatic means that only one round is fired per trigger pull, but the next round is subsequently loaded. I won't go into the weeds on this, but basically at the time, large caliber cartridges required very heavy, and cumbersome designs. Browning designed the M1918 Browning Automatic Rifle, which you may have seen in Private Ryan. It primarily fired the tried-and-true .30-06 and weighed around 19 pounds with a 20-round attachable magazine, and it could fire around 600 rounds per minute. It was impressive, it was big, it was expensive, and it was heavy. There weren't a lot in general circulation. There were obviously in the military, there were some in law enforcement, but not a lot in civilian hands. On the other hand, pistol cartridges like the 45 ACP, which the 1911 uses, didn't require as robust of a design. So General John Thompson invented the Thompson submachine gun, which went into production in 1921 and went into the service of governments businesses, private citizens, and you guessed it, criminals. You can't make a gangster movie about the 30s without a Tommy gun in it. By today's standards, it's heavy, but it weighed half of what a Browning automatic rifle did at only 10 pounds, and they have the option of 20 and 30-round stick magazines as well as 50 and 100-round drum magazines. The Thompson fired up faster than the Browning automatic rifle, or BAR, And while it was also expensive, it was still cheaper than the BAR and much more readily available. I've actually seen advertisements that they used to have, you know, promoting the Thompson to help defend your ranch against coyotes or whatnot. It was just a different time. So a new era of weapon technology had arrived. And with the rise of prohibition-related organized crime and gang violence, the federal government stepped in again in 1934. This time, they passed something much bigger than a simple law to prevent mailing pistols. This time, they passed the National Firearms Act of 1934, which is the foundation of federal gun control laws that we still use today. Much like how they went after gangsters with tax laws, the National Firearms Act, or NFA, as we'll refer to it from now on, is basically a taxation and interstate commerce law. The NFA establishes certain classes of firearms that were to be heavily regulated, registered, and taxed. Fully automatic rifles, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, suppressors, a.k.a. silencers, and a kind of catch-all term called any other weapons, or AOWs as they're referred to, that covered smooth-barreled pistols, shotgun pistols, Pistols with extra forward grips, things like that. They all fit under this NFA umbrella. These weapons also required a special excise tax to be paid of $200. While that might not seem like a lot today, $200 was a lot of money in 1934. I mean, let's not forget, the country's in a deep depression. A loaf of bread cost 8 cents. So just for a foot inflation, that's about $3,500 $3,500 in today's money, and even in the case of the barebone Thompson, the gun was actually slightly cheaper than the actual tax for it. So if you spent $175 for the Thompson, you're going to have to go spend $200 to get the tax stamp. The sales of the fully automatic weapons, as well as the other categories of NFA firearms that were manufactured, were still legal, and the new weapons were still being manufactured. Although the onerous tax did put a dent in their cells, and ultimately, production of those weapons went down. Now, whether or not it affected overall crime, I'm not really sure. The NFA was passed after the repeal of Prohibition, and it seems the era of Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger would eventually go the way of the dodo with the troubles of World War II. But before then, the Federal Firearms Act of 1938 was passed. And that's when the government actually created laws regarding the selling of firearms. It's what established the federal firearm license system or FFL as we'll refer to it from now on. And that stated that to sell a firearm as a business, you had to pay a fee of $1 and record what you sold and who you sold it to. It also established that it was illegal to sell to anyone with a violent felony conviction. Of course, back then there were no background checks and just as history progresses, technology was moving forward again too, and this time it began to pick up speed. Many variations of tube-fed semi-automatic 22 caliber rifles were developed, as well as a few small caliber semi-automatic pistols. Now, one of John Browning's last designs, before he died in 1926, was further fleshed out and gave rise to one of the first quote-unquote high-capacity pistols. The Browning High Power was introduced in 1935, and had a 13-round magazine. John Garand developed the M1 Grand, which fired the same cartridge as Browning's 20-pound BAR, but semi-auto only, and it weighed just in at 10 pounds instead of 20. It did not, however, have a detachable magazine. Instead, it had an internal magazine, which held an in-block clip that held eight rounds of thirty .30-06. Now, as a side note, that's one of those gun guy pet peeves where people say clip when they mean magazine. Magazines hold cartridges. Clips feed the cartridges into the magazine. Now you know. The M1 helped win the war for US ground forces. It was a superior weapon than any of the bolt action rifles that the other powers use. And its firepower and its reliability, and it's, you know, Patton called it one of the greatest. Uh, weapons ever, or some, I can't remember the exact quote, but it ushered in an era of semi-automatic rifles that didn't weigh a ton. So after World War II, having seen this weapon and some of the Germans' weapons and uh, a late-war Soviet semi-automatic rifle, all the sides realized they needed something new. And they either wanted a fully automatic or select fire weapons that could be fired either fully auto or burst or single shot. And the civilian market, having been in the war, having shot these M1 Garands and the Johnson rifles, they also wanted semi-automatic rifles. So gun designers on both sides of the Iron Curtain began to create new rifle designs. The new requirements for the government were a full-size rifle cartridge, detachable magazines and lighter weight than the old rifles of the past generation, which in some instances were like carrying a two before. In the Soviet Union, a young engineer by the name of Mikhail Kalishnikov designed the AK-47. It fired a 762 by 39 millimeter cartridge, which ballistically is about the same as your blessed old 3030 Deer rifle. But it had a 30 round magazine, with select fire, and it's a design that, in its simplicity and ruggedness, seems to work in even the harshest environments. It also weighed less than eight pounds. The US, however, initially focused on improving the M1 Garand design so that it incorporated a detachable magazine and the lighter weight of a 7.62 by 51 millimeter cartridge, aka the 308. You see, NATO was standardizing to the 7.62 round. And at the time, the general consensus was that they all wanted a full power cartridge. Now, while the rest of NATO had standardized caliber, that didn't mean they were all standardizing the same rifle. There were several other 308 magazine fed rifles, such as the FAL, the L1A1, the SETME, and the G3. The U.S. adopted the M14 Select Fire rifle. But as in most military rifle trials, there are multiple entries, usually. And during this search, a company by the name of Armalite entered into the mix. A young engineer by the name of Eugene Stoner had designed the AR-10. Now, AR stands for Armalite Rifle. And that fired the required 308 caliber. But Armalite was a division of the Fairchild Aircraft Corporation. And what are aircraft usually made out of? Aluminum. And Stoner incorporated plastic and aluminum alloys... In a design that weighed much less than the heavily milled steel receiver and the wood, the M14. And although in trials, people said that the AR-10 shot better and was more comfortable in some aspects, the government still went with the M14. When the M14 entered into heavy use in Vietnam, the soldiers complained that it was difficult to control during fully automatic fire with 308 cartridge. And the weight of the said cartridge made it difficult to carry a large amount of ammunition. The Vietnam conflict would end up being a war where suppressive fire against an often unseen enemy was utilized. So the soldiers wanted the ability to carry as much ammo as possible without being weighed down a ton. The army still had a few select fire M2 carbines left in the Korean War. When I say a few, they had a lot. Let's not kid ourselves. But the 30 carbine was an anemic cartridge at best. And the brass wanted something in between the weak 30 carbine, but the lightness of the gun, and the power of the 308, but not as heavy as the M14. And that's when Armalite submitted an updated design of their AR10, this time in the 5.56 caliber, or as you may know it, 223. And the AR-15, again, Armalite rifle, not assault rifle, met the criteria the Army had laid out. But in this case, due to the rush, Armalite was the only design ready to go into immediate production. So they got the contract. And so the AR-15 was rechristened as the M16 and became the frontline weapon of most of the U.S. forces. Although some M14s stuck around for a while. The initial M16 rollout was not popular. And it was not ideally suited for the harsh environments of Southeast Asia. But some tweaks to the design improved things a bit. And eventually, it became just part of the landscape of the Vietnam War. Now again, even though when Armalite submitted it, it was the AR-15, that was actually the M16. And they would later produce the civilian version, the AR-15, which is semi-automatic only. To say that the 60s were a tumultuous decade would be an understatement. And after everything had been happening, Congress passed the Gun Control Act of 1968. While the assassination of JFK in 63 with a mail-order rifle had brought a lot of calls to end mail-order gun sales of rifles and shotguns, nothing had actually happened. But with the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. with a rifle, and the gunning down of bobby kennedy with a pistol new pressure was brought to bear by the gun control movement and i'm willing to bet that the riots that were beginning to occur across the country also gave congress a reason to stop people from having guns shipped right to their door as they didn't want the people riding to be fully armed many of the mail-order gun houses of the time specialized in surplus weapons from around the world often at bargain basement prices I mean, hell, Lee Harvey's Oswald's rifle with the scope only cost nineteen dollars. The scope was seven, and the rifle itself was just twelve. Now, if you adjust that for inflation in twenty eighteen dollars, that means his rifle only costs ninety seven dollars. So, to Congress the prospect of a lot of unhappy minorities and not well-funded malcontents being armed with cheap mail-order guns probably didn't sound too appealing. So the Gun Control Act of '68 did a few different things. Number one, it put an end to mail-order long guns. Remember, mail-order pistols have been outlawed since 1927. It also made interstate commerce restrictions, such as with exceptions for FFLs, of course, that you can't purchase a pistol out of state. Prohibited private sales between people in two different states, unless you went through a licensed dealer and had or had your own version of FFL. It's the first time we see age limits put on gun purchases. It made the minimum age to purchase a rifle, shotgun, eighteen, and pistol ammo or a handgun twenty-one years old. Now, you know I mentioned the Thompson shoots forty-five ACP, which is also what the Browning or what Browning's 1911 shot, so there's obviously rifles that shoot pistol ammunition and vice versa, but that's the law, and that still holds true, you know, if you were a a young person and went in to buy a caliber that's in both pistol and rifles, they'll ask you, is this for a pistol, and if you say, no, it's for a rifle, they'll sell it to you, and if they, at most places, they may have changed now some, but if you had said it's for a pistol and you were 20, they wouldn't sell it to you. I actually had that happen to me a long, long time ago when, believe it or not, I was a young man. The Gun Control Act of '68 also added limitations for imported firearms, not the stuff that's being manufactured in America, but things coming up from overseas, that fall under a quote-unquote sporting purposes category. This clause actually prevents several models of foreign firearms from ever having been imported to the United States at all. Ironically, they have been imported for years to Canada, despite Canada's much stricter gun laws. But of course, where there's a will, there's a way. And a few companies over the years have taken on the role of domestic manufacturer, where they import parts and they replace a certain number of foreign-made components or U.S.-made receivers to meet the requirements and they assemble certain models, not those ones I'm talking about from Canada, but some other ones. And they're able to sell them now sometimes the varying degrees of quality and success of these ventures are questionable but they were the only ways you could get certain models of certain firearms over the years on the civilian front the GIs of World War II and Korea were quick to purchase semi-auto versions of their old M1 and M2 carbines with both 15 round and 30 magazines available These civilian M1s became one of the first widely available semi-automatic centerfire rifles with a detachable magazine on the civilian market. Seeing the popularity of the M1 carbines, L. James Sullivan and Bill Ruger updated and improved the M1 Garand design to offer a 5.56 rifle, but with the aesthetics of the M1 Garand. The civilian semi-auto version of the M16 was not widely available. But when Ruger introduced the Mini 14 in 1973, it became very popular, and from a practical standpoint, it was functionally the same as the AR-15. Both fired the .223 caliber, both had a 20 or 30 round detachable magazine, and cosmetically, they were only different since the Mini 14 came with a factory wooden stock, and the AR-15 had plastic black furniture. Eventually, AR-15s would become much more common. But they were expensive at the time because because Colt was the only licensed manufacturer. After 1968, things pretty much settled down at the federal gun control level for a while. But then in 1972, the Justice Department created the ATF and spun off their firearm dealings, including FFL business and regulations, to this newly formed organization. The ATF developed a reputation for harassing ffl dealers and since they were the only game in town you just had to deal with it but then the firearm owner protection act of 1986 changed things up a bit the intent of the bill was to correct some aspect of the gun control act but as an example of compromise when it comes to gun rights some things were lost possibly never to return one of its main purposes was to provide relief for the FFL holders from harassment by the ATF by limiting compliancy inspections to just once a year, unless a history of multiple violations had existed. Some of these ATF branch offices were hitting up dealers several times a year, disrupting business, harassing them, stressing them out, giving them a runaround, and this Firearm Owners Protection Act was geared towards helping things out with that. It also opened up some interstate sales of long guns, although not all. I believe it made it where you could buy a long gun in a state that you border, but not the next state over, if I remember correctly. It legalized ammunition shipping through the U.S. Postal Service, so you didn't have to use UPS or some some other type of private carrier. It did provide further limitations on who was legally allowed to purchase a firearm. So we're seeing where the constriction of who can purchase legally is tightening up. And it provided legal protection for people traveling through a state who were transporting a firearm, which would be illegal in that state if they lived there. And in theory, it prohibited a National Registry of Private Firearm Ownership. It says it explicitly, but... Just because it says something doesn't mean things don't happen behind the scenes. Well, that all sounds really great and like a reasonable thing. You know, we've protected some rights here, and then we have also constricted who is eligible to purchase a firearm. That sounds like a good compromise, right? Well, along comes the Hughes Amendment. The Hughes Amendment banned the sale of any newly manufactured fully automatic weapon after 1986. Pre-1986 fully automatic weapons were still legal to own and transfer, of course, with ATF approval, but no fully automatic weapon has been available to sell to anyone other than military, law enforcement, or properly licensed FFL dealers since. So obviously people are still making the modern version of the M16 as the M4, but no one can buy that. Unless they're in law enforcement, a military organization, or they happen to be a class three dealer. Those are called post-ban samples, and they are not very expensive when you look at them. The market is very shallow because there aren't many people to buy it, so the prices aren't that many. And since it's also an area where a lot of these guns are still being actively manufactured, there's a glut of content for a limited number of people to have. So there's no supply, the the supply and demand is inverted. But speaking of supply and demand, let's look at what happened to the civilian fully auto market. When I was a kid, prior to 1986, I remember going to Market Hall Gun Show and seeing M16s for sale on tables full of them right next to AR-15s. So you had the Fully automatic, NFA-controlled weapon, and you had its civilian counterpart, semi-automatic, sitting on the same table. There are some parts difference, but not a lot. And back then, M16s were just a few hundred dollars more than the AR-15. So let's say the AR-15 was a 1000 and the M16 was $1,500. If you wanted to buy it, you still had to go through all of the ATF regulations. You had to pay the tax stamp for the NFA, So you still had to do all these legal things at the gun show to get it. It just costs a little bit more plus the tax stamp. Along comes the Hughes Amendment on the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 86. And now there's no new M16s into the market. That gun that might have been $1,500 in 1985, today on the low end would cost $25,000. The irony of the Hughes Amendment is that the history of legally obtained NFA fully automatic weapons up to that point in time was pretty scarce as far as criminal usage? Now, there had been obviously criminal activity with illegally owned fire, uh, automatic firearms, but the number of legally owned registered fully automatic weapons is a, is probably you could count on one hand. And at least one of those incidents was an active-duty policeman who uses legally-owned MAC-11 to kill a police informant in 1988 in some dirty cop dealings. I think the number of registered fully automatics is around 250,000, and that includes those registered to law enforcement, I believe. So out of these 250,000 guns that have been tightly regulated since 1930s, we've had three or four criminal incidents with. Our next big piece of gun control legislation resulted from the attempted assassination of President Reagan and the subsequent wounding of James Brady. And that led the Brady family to tirelessly campaign for the Brady Law. And in 1993, the bill was finally passed. It required a five-day waiting period on handgun purchases at the federal level. Although some states already had that, on their own books. And in addition, it also required local law enforcement to conduct a background check. The bill also set up the future National Instant Criminal Background Check system, or as we'll call it, the NICS. And once the NICS was up and running in 1998, the federal five-day waiting period was waived. That was in the bill as well. So for the first time at a federal level, 1993, we have actual background checks happen. They weren't instanced. They required a waiting period. But by 98, we've got the instant background check. You call The dealer calls the number. They give you a yes or no. Then you get the gun. And that leads us to our next big piece of gun control legislation at the federal level. And that was the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. But most people call it the assault weapons ban. But the act wasn't just about assault weapons. It expanded the federal death penalty. It eliminated Pell Grants for prisoners. It provided grants for women's safety and increased the federal penalties on repeat sex offenders. It provided protection for driver's license information. It created a sex offender registry, provided grants for community policing, and gave us uh, the birth of the boot camps for troubled minors. And some very questionable laws regarding gang related crimes but the thing that still sticks out today and that's still talked about was the assault weapon ban portion of the bill and in this section it called out 19 specific models by name and banned them from further manufacture it also banned further manufacture of any weapons with a detachable magazine that had at least two of the following features folding stocks pistol grips flash suppressors grenade launchers, and bayonet lugs. It did not ban the ownership of these weapons. It just banned further manufacture. It also banned the manufacture of any detachable magazine capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Now, the companies were still manufacturing magazines, but if you have any magazines from that era, they may be stamped LEO only which I have a few. Surprise, surprise. Now, the assault weapon ban had a 10-year sunset clause, whereupon it could be renewed or allowed to expire after 10 years. As we know, it was, of course, allowed to expire. Now, the efficacy of the ban is questionable. Manufacturers did things like make firearms with detachable magazines with only one of the extra features, or none even. As uh, As I mentioned earlier, The Mini-14 and the AR-15 are both functionally the same. They both fire the same cartridge. They both are fed by a detachable magazine. They're both semi-automatic and fire a single round with each trigger pull. But from 1994 to 2004, you could only legally buy a new Mini-14, not a new AR-15. Because the Mini-14 had a wooden stock, it had no pistol grip, The standard model did not have a folding stock. The standard model didn't have a flash suppressor or a grenade launcher. Actually, you know what? It may have had a flash suppressor, but it didn't have a grenade launcher or a bayonet lug. Now, functionally, you may wonder what makes these features that a need for banning them. Folding stocks, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could conceal it. The pistol grip... I think people have been watching too many Rambo movies and things. I, I don't see why that was a banning issue. Flash suppressors really only do any good at night. So, again, I don't know what that had to do with anything. Grenade launchers, well, we'll talk a little bit later about grenade launchers, but that's a whole other issue. And bayonet lugs. I'd I challenge you to find how many instances someone had been stabbed with a bayonet. But anyway, that was what the ban was. So that's how we got here to where we are today. As we stand right now, only a licensed FFL can sell a new firearm. And they can only sell it to someone who passes the NICS background check. Or, at least in Texas, presents a valid concealed carry license. I think some other states do that as well. Now, individual states have their own laws of course, and states like Hawaii and California and New Jersey being very strict, and then states like New Hampshire or Arizona being fairly lax. Now, you will hear people talk about the gun show loophole. And some people have also said that gun shows were just invented for people to sell guns without without background checks. First off, there is no gun show loophole. Gun shows aren't like being out in international waters where You can do whatever the hell you want. If a licensed FFL does business at a gun show, then he has still got to go through all the paperwork, still has to do the NICS check every purchase. So when you see a big dealer at these shows, they probably have extra people with them just to handle the paperwork, helping the customer fill it out, and then sit there on the phone to talk to the NICS background check people. And since I've been going to gun shows for at least 10 years before background checks ever became part of the law, I know that they were not just created to sell guns without background checks. But, and this is a big but, we do have a private seller loophole. But private seller isn't scary like the word gun show. And when you use the word private, it hits a little too close to personal liberty. See, we don't hear this discussed very much. So from a federal perspective, there is no requirement for a private seller to do a background check before they sell a gun to another citizen. So if Ty wanted to sell me a gun, he would have no requirement to check and see if I was dishonorably discharged from the military. But on the flip side, currently there's no private individual access to the NICS background check system. So even if the private individual wanted to make sure the person they're going to sell to the gun is legit, they have no inherent way of doing it. Now again, this is at the federal level. Some states do have state laws requiring the transaction be handled by a licensed dealer, where they are charged a fee and have to fill out the paperwork. And some states require it be done by local law enforcement. And still a couple of other states issue a, basically, I can buy a gun legally card. So while there is no gun show loophole per se, we do have a private sell loophole. Wait a second, I should say we have a private transfer loophole. Because technically, what's the difference of selling it versus giving it? So legally, in some states, you have to actually do a transfer when someone gives a firearm. And if you ever borrow a gun, then you would also have to fill out the paperwork to borrow the gun. Then... I'm not sure, but I think your friend would have to fill out the paperwork to get his gun back. Now, if you ever uh, choose to do some hunting maybe that you haven't done before, you don't want to go buy a new gun, you want to borrow your friends, that's, not, that's very common where I'm from. But under this system, if we close the private transaction loophole, you would need to transfer it back and forth and get the background check every time. So there you go. That doesn't sound like the world I want to live in, but like I said, I'm not going to debate this too much today. Now, there are a host of disqualifications for buying a gun, such as a felony, restraining order, dishonorable discharge, um, having been committed, not being a citizen, or being an illegal alien, things like that. And people do get bounced by the NICS background check. But as we saw, we still have gaps in the feeder system that supply the info. The bastard that shot up the church down in the hill country, Texas, had been discharged from the Air Force, and his paperwork had never been entered into the NICS system. So he was able to purchase weapons where, had it been handled properly, he wouldn't have been able to purchase it at that retail place. That doesn't mean he couldn't have bought it from someone else, whether legal or illegally, because that private individual didn't have access to the NICS either. But that just shows that we still have a ways to go on our background checks. I'm sorry I spent so long explaining the history of the federal gun control, and I didn't even really get into the Heller decision from uh, the Supreme Court a few years ago, which asserts the individual liberty, but still allows some restrictions on how we, uh, how and what we can have. But let's get some of the questions we got from folks. I told people that I would admit their names and their identifying info. Gun control is a touchy subject around these parts, and people on both sides tend to get emotional. So if anyone wants to get mad, they can just get mad at me. Leave our listeners alone. Okay, so this wasn't our first question, but it was my favorite. And this comes from someone that is no stranger to this podcast, and his question is simply, what's up with all the guns? And that's signed, Fake Jerry Granville. Excellent question. I wonder about that all the time. What's up with all the guns? Where do all the guns go when people don't have those guns anymore? I'm trying to get all the guns I can. Trying to get guns off the street, getting them into my safe. I'm doing a public service. So here's another one. Dear, can you hear me? Why is a National Gun Registry a bad idea? I understand that if the gun is registered... Then the government knows what guns to take, and that criminals wouldn't register their guns anyway. Frankly, I wouldn't expect even law-abiding citizens like yourself to register all your guns. In my opinion, a person should only have to register a gun if they wish to take it off their property. This would, of course, not eliminate all gun-related crimes. However, in the case of the Las Vegas shooter, it might have given police a chance to prevent it. If I'm remembering, he made multiple trips to his house to bring more guns and ammunition Leading up to the shooting. It's about an hour long trip each way. And if any point of those multiple trips he'd been pulled over, it wouldn't raise a red flag. I think if anyone is caught with a gun that is not registered to them, they should be arrested. Signed. No, I promise I'm not Canadian. Well, Canadian, I appreciate the question. And I thank you for listening to us. But I think it shows some inherent problems with the registry and just what you said. Now, I'll admit it's difficult to address this one without putting on a tinfoil hat, but historically, registration can lead to confiscation. And in the case of criminals, I agree that they are not going to register their guns. So basically, you've created an additional burden on the law-abiding citizens. And as I mentioned, the Firearm Owners Protection Act prevents a national gun registry explicitly. Now, in Canada, they did implement a gun registry a few years ago, And, of course, the Canadian version is much smaller because of the scale of the population. But it has been debatable on its successes, and it's extremely over budget. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the FFL holds onto all the paperwork. But if there's an investigation, the ATF takes the paperwork. And if that FFL ever stops doing business, the ATF takes the paperwork. So I have seen people wonder, if the old paperwork that the ATF naturally compiles is combined with NICS data, there's the potential for an unofficial registry somewhere in the bowels of the Washington ATF bureaucracy. Now, the other factor with a registry that I think has certainly come into play now is that that doesn't even take into account homemade firearms. A lot of people don't know that from a federal perspective, as long as you follow all the NFA rules and are 922 compliant, which is another ATF rule regarding the U.S.-made parts, any person that is legal to purchase a firearm can also manufacture their own firearm. Now, you can't manufacture them to sell, but for your own use, you can build your own guns. Again, you have to make sure that you aren't building full-auto weapons or short-barreled rifles or short-barreled shotguns. Or pistols with extra foregrips, vertical foregrips, or uh, you know smoothbore pistols, things like that. But if you have the will and the tools and the patience, you can build a firearm at home. And now that can range from everything from primitive shotguns to artisan quality single shot rifles that are so beautiful they're works of art. And those have been makeable since before the Second Amendment even existed. You had people building rifles at home, you had people in the 50s building guns, 60s home machinists, a better time when men knew how to to mill steel, but now with 3D printing and the uh, rise of the 80% receiver, it's possible to build AR-15s, AK-47s, FALs, and a host of other semi-automatic versions of Firearms, including belt fed weapons of World War II, not machine guns, mind you, just the semi auto versions, you can build those at home. So if I've got people 3D printing AR 15 receivers or somebody bolting together a 1022 out of sheets of aluminum that they've machined, you know, there's no way to stop that. That genie's out of the bottle. Again, if you created a registry, I think you're going to create more criminals that you didn't have the day before because people aren't going to want to register their guns because they don't want the government to know that they have them. In addition, I'm personally skeptical of the efficacy of a national registry to prevent individual crimes. You know, I think it would be effective at first, in some cases, if someone had registered their weapons and then was later on judged mentally unfit, or maybe they had a domestic abuse case and a restraining order enacted, then the government could come and can confiscate that person's guns. Now, that's going on in California right now. Uh, Maybe not at this minute, but that's something that's in play. I hate to use the term slippery slope, but I do worry about a slippery slope of increasing reasons of confiscation once you go down this path. And ultimately, people would not continue to register their weapons once they see this happen, So, again, you've created a new class of criminal who'd previously been law-abiding. And as our friend, I swear I'm not a Canadian, swore, or guess properly, criminals aren't going to sign up for the registry to begin with. So, in effect, by doing this, we're going to create a whole new group of criminals. Our friend mentioned red flags. And in the case of the Parkland shooting, there were some significant red flags there. But... I will ask what's the recourse for a red flag detainment. Haven't done anything yet. Although in the case of Parkland, there were certainly some issues that probably could have resulted in detainment. Um, Are we going to do confiscation without due process? You know, due process is a tricky game. And then when you factor in HIPAA and questions about mental health, it becomes a literal, you know, bog of just how do we get out of this? But I appreciate the question and I look forward to discussing this with the guys when we're all together again. Another listener had this feedback. Dear Gus, I'm a hunter, but not a gun guy. I have a 17 HMR bolt action and a Benelli Supernova 12-gauge pump shotgun. I choose not to keep a handgun because I see as many negatives as positives. I'm definitely not anti-gun, but at the same time, don't think we can just keep sitting around hoping it gets better. Even if you don't do an episode about gun control, I'd still be interested in hearing your thoughts. Signed, Elmer Fudd. Thank you, Elmer. I appreciate it. Well, I think a lot of people fall into that same category as you. Maybe they only hunt, or they only shoot sporting clays, or something very specific. And they aren't gun people per se, even though they may even own a couple of guns. I I don't advocate that we do nothing. But I do balance the overall rights of the citizenry against any specific action. You know, I'm open to a mechanism of a no-fault pass or no-pass NICS background check that's available to private citizens. Of course, I do realize that the people who can't buy guns would just buy them illegally, even if they can't pass the background check. But as long as there wasn't a burden on private transfers, I'm okay with it. I'm also okay if it could be done through your local law enforcement organization, but again, just as a go or no-go not something where extensive paperwork is done. Now, I don't like the idea of having your local FFL do it because that necessitates that they charge you a fee for their time. I mean, they're in business, at least for law enforcement. We already pay, pay the taxes to pay them. So I'm okay with them doing it for free. Although I bet they'd charge you some bullshit fee too. But again, I think people would fail to, the check would just skip the legal route. Plus, I think a lot of people are just going to skip it anyway. You know, I mean, if again, going back to the discussion about private sales versus private transfers, if heavy wanted to go target shoot with one of, with his daughter and he wanted to borrow a rifle, I would just, he'd swing by and I'd give it to him, hand him a box of bullets and let him go. But as it were, if we went down this pathway, we would have to get together ahead of time, fill out the paperwork, pay the fee, he borrows the gun, again, reverse that, so you can see why the general populace would have to be conditioned to accept that. I do realize it's that way in some states, but those are the minority. I think maybe 17 states have some type of background check for private transfers of some sort, so it's still a long way to go for that to be accepted. Our next question is a little more technical in nature. So I apologize if I bore you to death. So this is from uh, a listener. He says, I know that there are several types of firearms that require a special permit to own the guns and the ammunition. What causes a weapon to fall into these categories? Is it caliber, firing rate, or what? Thanks. Signed, I want to blow stuff up. Signed, asking for a friend. As I discussed earlier, the National Firearms Act set the groundwork for all those special permits at a federal level. Now, states can, can, and some do, add extra requirements and restrictions like Hawaii, New Jersey, and California, but other states let you roll with it as long as you meet the ATF requirements. Number one, full auto or selective fire. The weapon discharges more than one round with the pull of the trigger, then that is an NFA weapon. And requires the tax stamp, fingerprinting, local law enforcement sign off, background check, yada, yada, yada. And the $200, if I didn't mention that. Now, in this definition, we aren't discussing extra devices such as crank fire, or bump fire, things like that. This is, and semi auto doesn't fall into this category either, unless there's some type of design element that makes it too readily convertible to full auto. I think I remember some cases of the ATF technical branch shooting down some designs because of this. Number two, short-barreled rifles. If a rifle has a stock and is designed to be fired from the shoulder and has a barrel less than 16 16 inches, it is classified as an NFA weapon. You'll see people push this sometimes with a barrel that's, say, 14 inches, but has a flash suppressor or muzzle guard that extends to 16 inches. Then they have that suppressor, or guard welded onto the barrel to give them an overall length of 16 inches. That's playing with fire in my book, and I'm not going to do that. I'll take my 16-inch barrel and stick whatever I want to on it, and I'll live with the 18 inches. I'm not someone that's ever probably going to step into the tax stamp world, and that's just one of those things like, I'm okay. I don't need that super short barrel on my rifle short-barreled shotguns. Now, I guess if there was something that was going to tempt me, it might be a short-barreled shotgun, but luckily, I sort of got that itch scratched, and I'll talk about that in a second. If a shotgun is designed to be fired from the shoulder, and it has to have a barrel of 18 inches in length, minimum, and an overall length of 26 inches. Now, I mentioned I kind of got my short-barreled shotgun fix in and that's thanks to these new 14 inch barrel shotguns from Remington and Mossberg that actually fit into a loophole in the NFA. Since they're new manufactured, they're considered firearms, but not shoulder fired firearms because they don't have a stock on them. But they are also not pistols because they are an overall length that is greater than, that's 26 inches. So, and that's, Man, that's due to this really elongated grip, but because of that, it fits into this narrow little spot that that's neither short-barreled shotgun or AOW, which we'll talk about AOWs in a second. Number four, any other weapon or AOW. It's kind of a catch-all category. Smoothbore pistols fall into this as well as pistols with an extra forward vertical grip and a few other oddball things. Now, you may be wondering about pistols like the Judge and how do they dodge this category. Well, it's because they're chambered for 45 long Colt slash .410 shotgun. They're basically length is different, but diameter of the cartridge is the same. Now, to get around this prohibitions on shotgun pistols, the barrel of the Judge is mostly smoothbore with the last bit of the barrel has a rifled section, thus getting it safely out of the AOW category and where you can just buy it at your heart's content. And fifth, maybe the most interesting of the categories, and that's the destructive device category. I think currently ATF regulation is maximum bullet diameter is half an inch, so you know 0.50, your 50 calibers, that's as big as you can get width-wise. But if you want to step into the destructive device category, you can get bigger. Now, shotguns don't fall into this even though they might be shooting slugs. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but if you wanted to build a .75-inch caliber rifle and make your own cartridges, you could, but I think it falls in the the destructive device category. That's the same for hand grenades, 40-millimeter grenade launchers, or anything like that, all the way up to field artillery. And as the kick in the nuts... I think not only the weapon requires the tax stamp and all the ATF paperwork, but each round requires its own $200 tax stamp. So you've really got to like blowing up things to get into this world. And that is a world where you have literally money to burn. That was a great question asking for a friend. I appreciate that. Now, if you want to learn more, you can go to the ATF site and do the research online like I did. Again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an ATF agent, just somebody that's dealt with this sort of thing for a while. Now, my next question is one that I hesitated answering on air, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, it says, Dear Gustav, I know that it is illegal to modify a semi-automatic firearm into a fully automatic firearm. Is it possible to modify any semi-auto into fully automatic? For example, I have a bolt-action twenty two that they also make a semi-auto version of. Could that be modified? What about shotguns? That would be really weird to have a fully automatic shotgun. Fully automatic shotgun. Signed, just wondering. No, seriously, I'm not going to do this. I'm just wondering. All right, full disclaimer. Do not attempt to modify any semi-automatic firearm to fire... Fully automatic, okay. That's what they went after those branch Davidians for, okay, okay. That some grenades and the possible child abuse, but they still went after them for fully automatics. Again, do not attempt the monkey with a gun. all right? First off, a lot of semi-auto guns just aren't mechanically designed to be full auto. You know. Mechanically speaking, especially for the simpler designs, it's way easier to design and manufacture a fully automatic gun than it would be to create a semi-auto version. Now, World War II is full of guns that fit into this criteria. What I'm talking about, you know, the Sten Mark III, um, the PPSH 43 by the Soviets. You know, there's lots of these examples of guns that, if you actually took them apart you would be amazed by the simplicity of it. And that's why they were able to crank out millions of these guns in a rapid time for the war effort. So let's talk about the Sten Mark III. The original design is basically a tube with a barrel riveted into the end, another cap to hold everything on and hold the spring in place, and then a groove for the port and the bolt to sit into and a hole for the trigger guard and the trigger. So basically, it's just a tube with a barrel riveted onto the end of it with a big spring in it and a metal bolt that holds the firing pin. And you pull the bolt back into the open position, and when you release the trigger, the bolt slams forward, pushes around up into the barrel. As it's slamming it, it's popping the primer, detonating it, The force of the round going off pushes the bolt back again, injecting the round, and it slings back again under spring power, strips another round into the chamber, and it keeps going until you let off the trigger and the bolt catches back again, or if you run out of bullets. It's incredibly simplistic. If you made a semi-auto version of this, of the same gun, you would have to redesign it almost from scratch. Because now it would have to legally fire from the closed bolt. As I mentioned earlier, I know the ATF takes a dim view of open bolt guns because they're worried someone could convert it to fully automatic easily. You'd have to have a floating firing pin instead of a fixed firing pin. What a floating firing pin means is you have to have the ability of a hammer to hit it, to drive it into the primer, to detonate it. It's not just going with the bolt itself in forward motion. So there's a lot of big differences here, even though cosmetically it looks the same. Different models of guns, semi-auto versions sometimes have extra sections welded or machined to prevent fully auto parts from going into it. And then sometimes there's just not a fully auto version of a semi-automatic gun. Always, you know, there's not a. The world of fully automatic weapons is much smaller than the world of semi-automatic weapons. But again, don't try to make anything fully auto because the ATF doesn't like it and there's, I'm too pretty to go to jail, so I'm not going to do that sort of thing myself. Now, on a side note, any machinist could make a simple open bolt full auto. In fact, despite the Australian gun ban, where guns are strictly restricted since their Port Arthur massacre, The criminal underworld is that several gun-running rings busted up where they were making their very own full-auto machine pistols. Basically, they were using square tubing and strong springs. So, even if you're Australian, don't make full-auto guns. I'm looking at you, Australian listeners. I know y'all are out there. All right, the next email we have or question is about bump stocks, and that's based on a mention of the Vegas mystery. Dear, can you hear me, boys? Is there any performance difference between a gun that has been modified to be fully automatic versus a bump stock of the same gun? If there isn't, how is a bump stock any different than modifying the weapon itself? Signed, bump in the night. Well, uh, bump in the night. I have never fired a fully automatic weapon, nor have I ever fired a weapon fitted with a bump stock. But I do know that both situations do not lend themselves to accuracy. You know, fully auto is for suppressive fire. It's not for accurate shot placement. And with each shot, the muzzle moves in an arc of motion away from the original point of aim. And I would assume that a bump fire rifle is inherently even more inaccurate due to the movement of the gun against the stock. I think in the past I've mentioned I still can't believe the bump stocks got past the ATF technical branch. Historically, these guys have been some hard asses. Basically, designers and engineers submit prototypes or designs to the ATF technical branch to rule on whether or not an item is going to run afoul of the NFA or any other regulations out there. Even after I heard that they issued a letter saying they were cool with bump stocks, I kept waiting for a reversal, which I know that they had done in the past before in some cases. To be honest, bump i'm too cheap to want to waste ammo either with a full auto or a bump stock although if you ever want to see something funny there is a video on youtube of an older gentleman riding a bicycle maybe a golf cart or his tractor through his property shooting balloons with a fully auto mac of some kind and it's very uh very blissful he's just as happy as can be now the next question is about mental health and it's a bit longer and a heavier subject matter Dear Gustav, After the Parkland shooting, the quick response from the pro-gun side was, This isn't a gun issue, but instead a mental health issue. Number one, I think, first off, I think this is a can of worms that the pro-gun side hasn't thought out. If there was some kind of legislation written about mental health and gun ownership, can you imagine what would happen the first time an NRA member was judged unfit to own a gun? It would be a huge disaster. Now, secondly there is little doubt in my mind that something has changed and there are either more people with mental health issues or we're just more likely to seek help and be diagnosed. Personally, I think that just more needs to be done to have more mental health professionals available and try to reduce the stigma around the issue. If people are treated, hopefully that would trickle down to a better decisions and preventing gun violence issues as a result of better mental health. Signed, Sigmund the Sea Monster Freud. Well, I admit that's quite the can of worms. First, I do agree that something has changed, and I'm not sure what. When I grew up in the 903 in the late 80s and the early 90s, half the cars and trucks in our school parking lot had a shotgun or a .22 in them. You know, no one was shooting up the school's den. Now, there was the suicide that inspired the Pearl Jam song, Jeremy, which happened around that time, but... I remember right, no one else was hurting that. It was just traumatic to everybody involved. I'm not a mental health professional, at least as far as you people know. But I do know that inpatient mental health took a big hit in the early 80s. But I'm not sure that exactly explains why 20 to 30 years later, we're seeing these incidents. Now, I'll put my tinfoil hat back on again. And I'll wonder if maybe there's some type of correlation with some of these mass shooters and SSRI medications. Or, I can put my Bible belt on and wonder if we need to turn back towards the Lord and we've lost our way somehow. Maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know. You know, mental health is a very tricky subject when it comes to carrying it out and tying it into gun control. Currently, if you were court-mandated to a mental treatment facility, that would exclude you from purchasing a firearm from a licensed dealer. But, That exclusion is for a drastic event. You know, that doesn't exclude someone who's seen a counselor for about a depression or someone that's having anxiety problems or anger management issues, nor does being prescribed psychiatric medication exclude you from purchasing a weapon from a licensed dealer either. If we start talking about mental health, are we looking at adding those criteria to exclusion Now, the only way that I could ever see this even working, even on a small scale, is requiring a face-to-face interview with a psychologist or psychiatrist each time a weapon was purchased. Now, I say each time because I've known people who were middle-aged professionals who suddenly suffered a psychotic episode and were never the same afterwards. You know, they had kept it together for almost 50 years, but one day they just snapped, and obviously... If they had already had the weapon while they were normal, then it wouldn't matter. But if they go to buy it now after this episode has occurred, just because they'd passed it in the in the, been successful with their interview in the past doesn't mean that would still hold today. The same could happen for domestic abuse, things like that. There's a lot of factors, and some countries do require you to take some form of psychological test. But I'm sure there are people that are twisted enough to do harm to others could. Possibly pass a written exam with flying colors. But then again, even with an interview, it's subjective. And I'm concerned what recourse does someone have if they're denied their basic right? Is there some type of pro bono appeals process? You know, if you're lower income or even middle income, you may not have the money to fight this legal battle to buy a rifle or a pistol legally. So you've been just from the sake of you don't have the time or the resources to do this, you're disenfranchised from your rights. So that gets into the same type of argument that people make about voter ID laws, you know, that it costs, some people can't afford to get to the DMV or some people can't afford to pay for the ID even if they don't drive. So, you know, this is one of those things where I can see problems with it if you really look at it under the... Uh, with you know, go over it with a fine tooth comb, and it kind of smacks that it could turn into some situation where the psychological bar could be so high that you basically are taking yourself back to the days of shall issue gun permits, but instead of just on race or financial ability or who you know, it's all based on this mental criteria that's been established of mental health. Now, I do think our nation's mental health in general. Not the not the mental health care system, but our actual psyche has taken a hit somewhere along the way. You know, when you look at the guys that perpetrated the Aurora shooting or the Gifford shooting, Newtown, the Charleston shooter, all these guys, they just look batshit crazy. Now, to my knowledge, most of them hadn't done anything that would preclude them, not all of them, but most of them would have been able to purchase a weapon if they were of age sometimes that's not even a factor or you know something they hadn't done anything yet that would keep them from buying a gun thanks to a background check so the question is how do we root out a few crazies without eroding the rights of everyone else again i don't have the answers in this episode i'm not even sure in a full debate episode i would but i did want to let that uh let that out there and let all the voices be heard and then we have our final question, and this one's about magazines. No, not Playboy, not Hustler, gun magazines. Dear Gustav, what is the current legal magazine capacity? I just did a quick internet search, and I see rifles with 30-round capacity, and I know there's even bigger out there. Outside of General Rights and possible malicious service, are there any real-world examples of why a capacity this size is practical? Do you have any thoughts on capacity size? Signed, does size matter? Well, federally, there is no current limit on magazine capacity. Of course, some states do have magazine capacity limits. And I believe Heller had no problem. The, you know, the Heller decision had no problem with that. From a pistol standpoint, I would want as many rounds as magazine as I can possibly get. You know, I own large-framed and small-framed semi-automatic pistols. And to be honest, if I had to use one in a situation where the chips are down, I want the one that has the most oomph balance with the most bullets. And that same goes for a shotgun. You know, if I have my choice between a standard pump with the plug in it to be legal for hunting, or if I can have the same gun just with an extended magazine and no plug, where I've got a couple extra shots, I'm going to take that extended mag version. And naturally, same goes if I was going to use a rifle for home defense. Now, you know, I want 30 rounds instead of 10 if I have my choice. There was a thread on Twitter recently about why would you ever need an AR for hunting? And that thread was a bit of a ruse, but I bet. And it's an original configuration of 223. You know, some places won't let you hunt deer With a 223, you let you know. Not to mention, a lot of places have limits on the number of rounds you can have in a magazine while hunting. Game laws are not the same as Second Amendment laws, okay? Or gun control laws—they're two different things. And as anybody that's done any hunting, especially in Texas, knows, that game warden and his set of laws—they trump everything, okay? But. To be honest, the two hundred twenty three is a pretty anemic cartridge. Again, the government adopted it because it was lightweight. It wasn't as anemic as the thirty carbine was, but it shot fast and you could carry a bunch of bullets. I know people use them for hunting hogs, and I know people that use them for hunting coyotes. Um, I think they're probably a little bit better suited for coyotes, but I know people use them for hogs. But I would want something a little stouter. Now, if you stepped up to an AR-10 platform with a 308, I think that's great. Or if you moved up on an AR-15 and put a different upper on it and had a 762 by 39 like the AK-47 or a 300 Blackout, something with some ump, then I think you have a pretty good uh, hunting cartridge, much better than that 223. But again, That thread wasn't really about hunting, but was instead about trying to make the Second Amendment about hunting, which it obviously isn't. And we can see that based on Federalist paper number 46 if we uh, didn't already look at that at the start of this. But here's my dirty secret, pal. Even though I built a couple of them, I don't really like ARs or the AR platform, for that matter. It's not attractive to me. It's not ergonomic to me. If I have to pick a semi-automatic magazine fed rifle, I am going to choose the FAL and 308. And because of the nature of the FAL, most of those mags are just 20 round magazines, so it's kind of a self limiting thing. But if I could get 30 round mags easily and cheaply, I would buy them up too. Well This has probably gone a lot longer than you expected. I know it's gone longer than I expected. I didn't think it was going to take this long, but it's uh, something I wanted to try and give a little bit of background. Hopefully it is educational. Again, if anybody has any thoughts or questions, I welcome those. You know, I don't want to, I'm not the type to have a shouting match. You know that about me, but if you want to have a discussion, I welcome that. Uh, I doubt anybody's going to change anybody's mind when it comes to this sort of thing, and that's okay, but I do like it when people talk about the facts of the matter and kind of step back from the emotion. I get that it's emotional, but sometimes emotion brings hyperbole, and hyperbole gets taken as gospel later on, and things just get way out of uh, sync with reality, so... If you would like to uh, talk to me, I'm always on Twitter, at at RealGustav. You can email us at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com. And uh, the next episode, I promise, will be lighter weight. It'll be me and Ty dishing out jokes and answering Twitter questions, if I remember correctly. So be sure to tune that in. And, again, I apologize for giving you kind of a a dry episode, but I felt that it was the time for it. So, let us know what you think, and I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Bye. <laughs> In February, you introduced the Assault Weapons Ban and Law Enforcement Protection Act of 2007. It would regulate semi automatic assault weapons Including weapons that have pistol grips, a forward grip, and something called a barrel shroud. Weapons with a barrel shroud would be regulated. What's a barrel shroud, and why should we regulate it? I think, I think the more important thing is that it also would have had banned the large capacity clips that right. Colin Ferguson had but used, I, and also uh, the killer. Okay. But I read, I read the, the legislation. I'm sorry, I read the legislation that said that it would regulate barrel shrouds. What's a barrel shroud, and why should we regulate that? The guns that were chosen back in uh, in those days were basically the guns that most gangs and criminals were using to kill our uh, police okay. officers. I'm not saying it was the best bill, but that okay. was the best do bill to know you know get a barrel out of that particular time. I actually don't know what a barrel oh, okay. shot is. It's, in your it's legislation. a shoulder thing that goes up. This is a ghost gun. This right here has ability with a thirty caliber clip to disperse with thirty bullets within half a second. Thirty magazine clip in half a second. And world class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Sally. Good night from Dallas, Texas.